It's really nice to be back at Cambridge Insight. And uh, I noticed as I sat down, I'm sure some of you do too, just the cumulative, beautiful energy of all the folks who practiced in this room over the, de- the decades. It's really nice to be able to sink in and sort of enter the stream of people's intentions to settle into their lives a little more deeply and settle into the moment and kind of counter that cultural tendency we have, which is to feel the need to be defended or tight. And and part of that freezing up tendency is this cultural and personal habit habits that we have basically scaring ourselves. We think about our financial situation, which I'm not saying is a bad thing to do, but we can do it in a way just to scare, torment ourselves. Or we think about the world, the injustices that are in the world, or we think about our body and assisted living. (laughs) (laughs) It's these subliminal reminders, like just the little slip tonight. It, It has an impact. Assisted living, memory care, I mean, these are kind of impactful. So it, it really, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, this, these practices that we do together here at Cambridge Insight, but at home and other places, it's really, they exist in a powerful, provocative way, as a counterweight, as another way. So we have the way of defense and armor and certainty and looking for solid ground, certainty. And then we have the way of Dhamma, the way of Dharma, which is taking refuge in the way it actually is. Because if we, to whatever degree, we take refuge in the way that it is, I don't have to defend anything. Right? Because I'm aligning with the truth of my experience. I'm opening getting clear with the truth of my experience. And in a way, letting it take me wherever it takes me. I mean, one way to begin a talk, I mean, any Dharma talk, but especially maybe one on the Buddhist teachings on impermanence. And, you know, if you're not, haven't studied the early Buddhist teachings, the teachings coming out of this, person that we refer to as the Buddha, this person who lived 2,600 years ago, just a human being who had some real interest in their own mind and some talent to use awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness, to wake up, to see what can be seen when we use our mind, use our heart, which normally the sensitivity of the mind and heart usually goes out through the sense gates into the what we call the external world, but we can be reflective and in this sort of internal way and, and in this sense understand our subjective experiencing of the mind and body. And it changes things. That's what the Buddha came to understand. It really is transforming, it's liberating to develop the awareness the stability of awareness, so that we can be internally reflective 
about the nature of the mind, the nature of experience, and come into alignment. And, you know, it's useful at the beginning of a talk to ask ourselves, like, as human beings, to be very honest. And it would be nice, actually, you know, to reflect on it right now, but even nicer if we could take a half an hour and just hear from people. But are we in need of a refuge? Are we in need of a practice? Or is it totally okay the way things are, how I'm relating, the force of my habit energies, my personality, and the personality of us collectively? Are we doing okay? Or are we in need of a refuge, a practice? And I've, you know, I think most of us, you know, one of the, it's interesting in Buddhist cosmology, you know, that it really points out there's problems with safety and privilege and affluence because it can make it appear on the surface, I'm not really in need of a practice or a refuge. I'm doing pretty good. Life's pretty good. feel pretty good. And in a diluted way, we can forget that, sort of forget that we're sort of part of this wider dance here of humanity, which means we're part of all of the, you know, the underbelly, how suffering, how injustice, how oppression works. We're not distant from that. We're not distant, distant actually from our body falling apart. And all the other ways that, you know, we can forget when things are nice and we have a comfortable home and a comfortable group of friends or family and a comfortable mind, you know, story about who I am and how how we think about ourselves, how we think about ourselves in terms of the rest of the world, kind of works until it doesn't, (laughs) until something happens. And it can happen quick. I mentioned uh, the person we're staying with, an old, old friend, and we were a little bit surprised when I, Carol dropped us off and there was nobody home. <laughs> sort of strange. Old friends putting you up for the night and then they're not there. And uh, this person I was, I'm staying with, Wynn and I, Wynn's over here, the co-founder of Common Ground in Minneapolis is here tonight with me, my partner. And uh, out for a bike ride in the morning and some other bicyclist rode in front. He flew over the handlebars. He's getting ready for the big ride on the weekend. I guess there's a big charity ride going on this weekend. And broke four ribs and threw his shoulder out and hit his head. Luckily, he had a really good helmet. And uh, spent from 8 a.m. until 4 o'clock in the hospital <laughs> getting put back together. Um, you know, so could have been worse. Actually, he kind of escaped pretty well, given what it can be when you fly over your handlebars like that and tumble on the concrete or the blacktop. So we know this. I mean, we don't always remember, but we know anything can happen. So the question, are we ready, like is how we operate, how we're connecting and living and aligning, are we ready for anything that can happen? Or are we dependent on our privilege, our affluence, our health, our mental health? Are we dependable, uh, depending on something that's not dependable? 
And this pretending that we're safe, pretending that I don't need a refuge or a practice, ends up being really stressful. Pretending is stressful. <laughs> like pretending that aging and dying is what happens to other people, but not to me. So when we understand that, then we're interested in this question. This is a, the kind of question, because the Buddha, the Buddha and the Buddhist teachings, very pragmatic, really down to earth, especially early Buddhism. Of course, things kept evolving after the time of the Buddha, you know, and not only in northern India for a long time, but of course in many other places in the world. And so it, it, it you know, evolved in really beautiful sometimes ornate, sometimes really simple, but just many different ways. But some of us, people like, you know, the leaders and teachers at Cambridge Insight, were people who generally feel attracted to what we sometimes call early Buddhism, the teachings of this person who lived 2,600 years ago, and other teachers and people who were really interested in how he framed things. And it was really in a simple, pragmatic, you could say even psychological way there is this mind and body or even more directly simply there is this activity of the body and the mind what we normally call me or my life right it's just it's this activity of the body and mind being known and then the pragmatic question is what when i do it like what when i Train my mind in what way, direct my mind, frame my way of being, my way of relating. When I frame it in what way does my life, my heart move in the direction of ease and release? And when I relate in another way, when does my, how does my heart move in directions that are not easeful? agitated, not clear, clouded. Right? So it's really that practical question. It's not about being good or bad. Am I good? Am I bad? It's really more this process question. What kind of seeds am I planting, given how I'm showing up in my life, how I'm relating, how I'm understanding? Because one of the things the Buddha makes a big point of It's not just what we do that matters, but it also matters how we think, how we see, how we understand. It just matters in a more subtle way, but actually very it's a you know, it's it has real impact. And that inspires us to want to change our mind. So this question, well, what when we do it changes the heart-mind, moves the heart and mind in the direction of release, in a direction that's liberating, easeful, leading onward toward wisdom and kindness, being more skillful in life, no matter the conditions. right? Because I'm interested in a wisdom and a compassion and a skillfulness that isn't dependent on being healthy or even mentally healthy. Like, you know, one of the big scary things is Alzheimer's, right? So are we practicing in a way that allows us 
to dance with whatever conditions come our way, or any of the other difficult, scary things. And whether we're consciously aware of these things, the probability of these things, doesn't mean they're not, like we could be unaware, but that doesn't mean we're not in an unconscious way haunted and reacting to, because it's just part of our reality as human beings. Things are uncertain. I don't know if people know Reb Anderson. He's a pretty well-known Buddhist author, Zen teacher, used to be a long time ago, the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and now just kind of a senior teacher in there. And uh, he lives up at um, uh, Green Gulch Farm, which is owned by the San Francisco, San Francisco Zen Center by Muir Beach, if you know that area north of San, San Francisco, really beautiful place. But they have a little <clears throat> country pla- practice area up there north of the city. But he has this great little teaching where he says something like, uh, people who haven't done a lot of Dharma practice are vulnerable some of the time. People who've done a lot of Dharma practice are vulnerable all of the time. And to me, that, that's a really helpful understanding about what we do when we come to a place like Cambridge Insight or go on retreat or do your practice, do your study. We're aligning with the truth of uncertainty and we're aligning, getting comfortable, being vulnerable all of the time. It's so liberating to not have to pretend we're not vulnerable or we're not having to pretend that things aren't uncertain. There's a favorite, one of my favorite passages from the Buddhist teachings. It goes like this. Immeasurable is this onflow. The earliest point cannot be known as beings obscured by ignorance. So in, in sort of early teachings, ignorance is often defined as the awareness being distracted or superficial, disconnected, not seeing clearly, not connecting with our experience as it actually is, but experiencing through the filter of what we think, right? So you know how it is when you're interacting with someone and you realize that the interaction is dominated by our preconceived ideas more than actually meeting the person in a fresh way with that humility of, you know, and just who they are isn't so much defined by our thoughts as much as the direct experiencing of the interaction. Obscured by ignorance and tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. So this is, this is just the first part. Immeasurable as this onflow, the earliest point cannot be known. As beings, you and me, obscured by ignorance, tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. For a very long time indeed have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, and swelled the charnel grounds. It surely has been long enough to become disenchanted 
long enough to become disengaged. So here it's not disengaged in the sense of not caring or not showing up, but disengaged from a stance, from a fixed view, long enough to become free from all formations, all fixed views, all becomings, you could say. And then he goes on, formations are so impermanent, formations, mental constructions are so unstable, formations are so unsatisfying. The Buddha then uttered this verse, and this last verse here, it's what, like at Buddhist funerals and memorial services, this is the verse we chant in Minnesota, probably most places in Theravada or early Buddhism, this lineage. How impermanent formations are, their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. Calming them meaning the mind not being dependent on formations. And this is the this is the whole point, really, of aligning with experience. It isn't a giving up on life, which is often, it's kind of the shadow in Buddhism, is, oh yeah, the Buddha teaches that there's dukkha, that there's this uncertainty and unsatisfactoriness, that experience, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> like that. you know, that our experience is uncertain and unreliable and ungovernable, right? So given that that's true, does thinking about myself and my life where I'm staking my happiness on something that's unreliable, undependable, does that make sense? It only makes sense when we're deluded and we think that what's unreliable, we're pretending basically that it is reliable. I mean, I I think about this a lot recently because Wynn and I are doing, not a big, but a little renovation at home. And some of you know, it's stressful to, first of all, it's expensive. And it's always more, you know, you start, we putting a new window in and then we realize water was getting into the wall and a lot of the, Wood was rotten, and then you got to look at a roof, and then this, and then that, and you know, it just. And you see why it makes so much, it seems on the surface, it makes so much sense to be in denial and to be distracted, and it kind of ignorantly, but hope for the best. You know, hope that monsters don't sneak up on us. It's like that sort of, you know. Something bad's happening, and we close our eyes and plug our ears and go la 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 la, because <laughs> we we don't really want to see, don't really want to feel, don't really want to know, but it's really stressful. So, interestingly, you know, when you look at all the ways the Buddha taught over those forty-five years from his awakening, and then wandering around northern India teaching for forty-five years. It's interesting to see how much he recommended, how often he recommended for practitioners to pick up the theme of impermanence 
Because going back to that initial question, what, when we do it, plant seeds for release and ease and clarity, a deepening of wisdom and kindness, more skill, more freedom in our lives? And the Buddha's answer was often contemplate impermanence. Live your life as you normally would, but as you're connecting, as you're experiencing, highlight the reality of change, whatever you're doing. So like in our formal way, when we're doing sitting meditation, and let's say you're someone who likes to be aware of the breath as you breathe in and the feeling sensations of the breath as it goes out, you don't have to change how you're practicing your meditation, but <clears throat> you might on purpose notice that the sensations of breathing in is a process of change. You know, we might think this is the in-breath. When we give it a name, in-breath, it's a noun, it seems like it's a real thing, in-breath. And then there's out-breath. But there isn't a thing in the in-breath or the out-breath. It's a, a flow, it's a movement. And as we look with real clear, with real clarity, refined attention, real interest, we see that every little bit of that process of breathing in and every little bit of that process of breathing out isn't much of anything. And as the Buddha says that the body, you know, that we're talking about an aspect of the body, the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. But the mind, thoughts, mental activity, emotion, perception, feeling tone, these different aspects of the mind, much more ephemeral than the body. I mean, as ephemeral as a sound is, you know, it's there. It has a kind of solidity that thoughts don't even have, can't even get close to. Like, what is the nature of a thought, not the content of a thought. So just make up a thought, whatever it is. You could, like, pink elephant is a thought, right? And you probably, you might even have a mental image that's, you know, but... And then there will be reverberations. But when you, on purpose, rethink that thought, pink elephant, I mean, it's not much of anything. But how many times in our life have we been interested as we're just sort of doing whatever we're doing? So not even during a formal meditation, just living your life, cooking a meal, getting to work, talking. How many times has there been an authentic interest, as the Buddha would recommend, to frame or to... When I say frame, it doesn't mean we're thinking about impermanence. It means as we're connecting with the present moment, we're interested in highlighting or tuning in to the changing nature of whatever's happening in the moment. How many times do we do that? Not very often. You know, maybe after we read something or hear something, a talk, it might make us, make the mind interested. But it's hard to sustain interest in impermanence. And that's exactly what the Buddha would recommend. Like uh, one of the teachers I've been practicing with more recently, I'm guessing maybe he's been at Cambridge. Has Venerable Analio, this German monk, come to give a talk here? 
He's now got a residence at uh, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, some of you know, not too far away from here, on the same campus of Insight Meditation Society, where I teach, and sort of a lot of the founding teachers of Cambridge Insight, a longtime teachers at um, IMS, as we call it. Narayan is one of the guiding teachers there. The guiding teacher here is one of the guiding teachers at IMS. And um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, Venerable Analio, thank you. So this German monk is now sort of established at the Barry Center of Buddhist Studies. It's sort of a study practice place right next door to IMS. And he has this, he summarizes the Buddhist teachings in, I think, a really profound way. So like if you just want to, now remember, the Buddha taught from different angles, so it's not the only way he taught, but it's a very powerful way and a way he really recommended. And it's easy to remember this teaching phrase. Keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. What am I doing in my life? What's the deepest, most relevant part of my life as I earn my living, take care of the kids, save for retirement, try to make the world a better place? But at the top of the priority list, even as we do all those other important things, keep calmly noticing change. And the calmly is really important because if we forget that, well, just because of the force of our conditioning, we're going to, by habit, be in opposition to change. You know, the ants around our house, they're just doing what ants do. They want to nest. And if there's wood in the way where they want their nest, where they either eat the wood or they break it apart and deposit it. We see these little piles of wood dust. And we know that the ants are in the wall making a nice home for themselves. Keep calmly noticing change. Right? Or you see the country that you've lived in and you thought was one way and then seems to be changing in ways that you don't trust or maybe ways that you really like. Keep calmly noticing change. Or you begin to notice changes in the body or changes in your mental nimbleness as you get older. Keep calmly noticing change. Like really normalizing the reality of uncertainty, ungovernableness, unreliableness. Because isn't it true, like our deep, deepest conditioning really is to put a sense of me in opposition to change. That's why we want houses that are built out of materials that don't decay, right? And that's why we develop things like Roundup. Some of you know this chemical that's been used for decades to get rid of weeds, basically. And now, of course, as you might imagine, is finding out how terrible it is in many different kinds of ways. But in so many different ways, you know, this youth culture, trying to keep the body looking young. How many different ways are we doing just the opposite of keep calmly noticing, being interested, actually curious in a calm way? Not afraid of it. Not imagining we should be afraid of it. Just being fascinated by change. So amazing. I was in my 30s. Then I was in my 40s. And it felt like a long time. 
And then I was in my 50s, that seemed like a pretty long time, and now I'm in my 60s. Right? I mean, it's kind of amazing how things change. And what would the effect be? Like, is it true, as the Buddha suggests, that this is onward leading? There's a really beautiful sutta where the Buddha says, fruitful as an act of giving is, yet yet it is still more fruitful to go with confidence to this practice, right, of waking up even in a devotional way. So so first thing he says, it's really good to be generous, a generous human being. But better than that, really have this emotional devotion to being awake. Buddha knowing Dhamma, we say. Like the wakeful, the capacity to be awake, being awake to the way it is. So just basically saying to really deeply value waking up better than being a generous person, even better than being a generous person. Better than that is to undertake a training to develop what we call in Buddhism sila, like this deep training in non-harming. So really like initially bringing awareness, mindful awareness to our relationships, to our you know immediate others, people in our lives, but also our relationship to the wider world. And really looking at how we're relating in terms of not wanting to cause harm to ourselves or to others, taking responsibility for the world to do our best. Now, can we live in this world without causing any harm? I don't think it's possible. But the Buddha's not saying, he's not asking for perfection. He's saying it's liberating to care about not harming, to keep it in mind. But he's not done yet. So as powerful as it is to live with this deep commitment to non-harming, he says it's even more, much more transforming, liberating to have our hearts deeply established in love, like a universal love, not love for one individual, but a love that isn't about any particular individual like just love for love's sake, to be really grounded in a radiant, multi-directional love for as long as it takes to milk a cow, right? So whatever that would be. Last time I gave this talk, an uh, old friend who was a dairy farmer as a kid was in the room, so I asked, how long does that take? I think he said like seven minutes, five to seven minutes, right? So it's like a, a meditation object where the mind doesn't waver. You're not thinking about loving kindness, but the emotion of loving kindness has been developed. Some of you have done the loving kindness practice. Like I, I think uh, Narayan is doing a, a workshop on metta coming up. So you might, if you haven't, you might check it out. It's a really beautiful meditation practice. And when the, there's some momentum, then the mind, the heart, for periods of time can be completely dominated in a way, overrun by the simple goodness of the heart. And in a way, the mind rests in that radiant goodness of love. And if you do that for as long as it takes to milk a cow, it's really a great thing. It's, it's deeply healing on an emotional and spiritual level.
to do that. And now the Buddha's not done, right? So even more transforming, more useful, more liberating than that is to see the underlying truth of impermanence for the length of time of the snap of a finger. Now, this is helpful to hear that because a lot of us will think when we hear that is, well, I've done that. You know, I've noticed impermanence many, many times and it was about that long. So I guess I must have, maybe I'm there already or something. But they're really talking about not a conceptual, even a sort of a deeply nuanced, but still conceptual understanding that things change, that everything is in process. There's nothing that's static. I mean, we kind of intellectually, it just makes a lot of sense. Certainly more sense than the other profound teaching from the Buddha that, you know, the not-self teaching, anatta, the impersonal nature. That's definitely not as intuitive as the teaching that everything is in motion. There's only change. So we can kind of get it, and that can make us complacent. So the Buddha is asking us to use the immediate, direct experiencing of sensation, sound, seeing, and the movement of thought, movement of mental activity, and to rest, to really um, sort of surrender or submit We're basically letting reality be our teacher. Not what we think is true, but the direct and immediate experiencing of body and mind. And what we find is that there isn't any ground, anything that's static. And this is the point that, you know, what when we do it is liberating. You know, we have what we call a mind, a heart. So what should we do with that mind and heart? Because a lot of times what we do with the mind and heart is basically look through catalogs. Whether we actually have a catalog in front of us or we're just thinking about like the catalog of what's in my fridge that I could eat when I go home tonight or what's on the TV or on the internet that I could look at when I get home tonight or what the catalog of possible vacations or the catalog of possible relationships we could have or the catalog of statements I could say to my partner that would show them who I am or, you know, whatever. But we're basically reviewing possibilities. That's We're entertaining ourselves. In Buddhism, we call that becoming. You know, it's all about a lot of mental activity is either about some sense experience we're interested in or wanting to avoid or something, somebody rather, we could possibly become. The person who does this, the person who doesn't do that, the person who says this, the person who has that. So in a way, we're in that restless realm that, as the Buddha says, the restless realm that is so burning. Craving, wanting, becoming is burning. It's The restlessness of it is burning. It burns us. And that burning, we don't like that feeling, so we, what do we do? We just find something else to want to distract ourselves from the burning. We always do what we've always done, so we always get the same results. But we still do what we've always done before, because we don't really have another strategy. 
So when we sort of notice the burning of wanting things to be a certain way, we start thinking about some other way we want things to be. So we're distracting ourselves from that burning by setting in motion some other burning. But on the surface, it can be, you know, wanting, becoming, can be juicy on the surface. Same with even something that's obviously more painful can be juicy on the surface, like self-righteousness and rage. On the surface, the Buddha calls it murderously sweet, you know, rage and resentment and anger. But, you know, we it's more obvious with different states of anger or hatred that, boy, this is painful. It's not as obvious with greed that it's painful, that it's really a cause for suffering. And it's really uh, the, the habitual way of avoiding what the Buddha would recommend us, which is keep calmly noticing change, get interested in change. Use that frame, that teaching of impermanence. Just keep bringing it up in very simple ways. Oh, that meeting I was in the middle of, now it's over. Oh, that talk I went to at Cambridge Insight, it's half over now, more than half over, right? My life, you know, even in the best scenario, is half over. <laughs> you know, 122 years, possible, but not likely, right? So maybe, you know, two-thirds, with great probability, it's two-thirds over. You know, just to kind of, oh yeah, so there was, and now it's over. It's just so interesting how that, like it, it used to seem new to be 61. Now I'm realizing I'm closing in on 62. Well, that's interesting. You know, the summer was just beginning and now I can really sense that we've we've hit midsummer, right? And now it's whoops, arcing toward fall. And just to keep bringing that in over and over again. I started the ice cream, but now I'm sort of in the dregs, right? And I'm noticing, you know, whatever that's like, maybe disappointment, or the show was there, and now it's coming, that half an hour sitcom is ending. And even with the breath, like really noticing, getting interested in that moment where the out-breath ceases, and then there's birth. And it's not just, of course, change just isn't about endings, it's also about things bursting forth, to notice that. Like I was really sleepy, and now I'm really awake or things were really difficult, but now it's gone. My heart was so heavy, and now it's not heavy anymore. I mean, think about really the intense pain of a breakup. Some of you, I'm sure we've all, most of us at least, have had difficult breakups of one kind or another, or losses, right? And just how that sort of shock sometimes, because we don't know who we are anymore, because we got so used to being the one who was in relationship with this person, now that's not happening anymore. And in that place, it can feel like this will never end. But the fact is it did end. Those painful places we've inhabited, where is it now? What ended? So it's just interesting, like, is it true what the Buddha suggests that if we keep this in mind, 
that really unimaginable, I mean, it's really, he, it's presented in the teachings in this kind of provocative and profound way. Unimaginable goodness, liberation, comes about if we just go about calmly noticing change. And in our formal sets, and when we're fortunate enough to get on a retreat where we have a little bit more time, maybe even like a nine-day retreat, which would be amazing, but certainly even day-long retreats, half-day retreats, where we have a little bit more time. You know, and remember, noticing change is really not different than saying noticing the way it is. Because, again, intellectually, it's not hard to get this, that even though we use words that make things seem permanent, like Mark Nunberg, that my name makes it seem like this is something solid and permanent, but there's nothing here that isn't a process of change. Whether we're talking about the physicality of what we call Mark Nunberg or the personality, the mental conditioning, all of that clearly is just a changing process, a flow. Like we've often, many of us have heard, you know, all of the cells, all of the atoms and molecules, right? Is it every seven years, basically, there's nothing older than seven years. It's something like that. Maybe some of some of the scientists in the room know better, but it's like, it's not like anything is static. Everything is getting replaced and transformed. Even the building, you know, it seems, oh no, but this is solid. But it's not. Everything is falling apart and then being rebuilt, maybe. It's in a process of change. And this is on a grosser level, but in a more refined, subtle level, And again, we can get a sense, an intuitive sense, intellectually. But when things are a process nature, there really isn't any kind of ground whatsoever. And we can get little flavors of this. Sometimes when people are meditating, they get a little momentum. Samadhi, we call it that stability of mind, concentration. It really naturally allows wisdom to see things as they are and you can one thing we experience like we normally think of the body in this more solid way of having weight and having form right that's just a common conception we have of the body but when we're meditating but but doesn't mean we're like having a hallucination all of a sudden the body gets is experienced in a more subtle way as being more like space, more initially more like energy, a movement of energy, and then as the awareness becomes more refined, more like open space. And the wisdom of the mind, it knows the body's here, but it's not pretending the body is lines up with the ideas we have, like that it's has a particular shape, particular weight, particular because these sensations are more about the cognitive conceptions than they are about the direct experiencing of sensation. Because when sensation is seen with a more refined attention, sensations 
what it gets highlighted in sensation is that it's changing. So it doesn't become ever solid. Something that's changing never becomes anything, right? Because it's always in motion. You know, it's interesting now in modern times, this is confirmed by physics. You know, if you ask the physicist, you know, about the building, about our bodies, about the earth, about the solar system, they would say, what would they say? They'd say it's mostly space, open space. And even what's not just open space is this dance, this movement. Everything is in motion. Now we we tend to think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not me or this, my life. Right? But maybe it is. And maybe that's experienceable. Maybe we can cultivate enough interest, enough persistence to be aware of things as they are, to, to really allow the mind to become calm and to use that calm and stable, clear, present moment awareness to open to the body or to open to the activity of the mind and be transformed by that. So in Buddhism, we often talk about this as the three characteristics of existence. So our normal, you know, just with our casual attention, we're mostly lost in thought. We still see sights, we hear sounds, we touch things, but those kind of sensory experiences are immediately replaced. Zabutan, you know, this is what this cushion is called that I'm sitting on. Zabutan, green, right? So I have the perception, the mental conception of green or cushion or mic or people, building or me, right? We have these labels that, and we really can't stop that perceptual process from happening but it solidifies because we live in that place. So that's sort of the normal way. And then we start training the mind to not just be stuck at the level of concept. And we actually like discover, oh, smoothness. You know, red, bright, dull, heavy, light. We just start noticing specific characteristics of sound, of sight, of sensation, of thought, judging thought, worrying thought, loving thought, right? We can start, it's almost like we become more fluent about present moment experience and we can really start picking up. Just like a naturalist, somebody who, let's say, gets obsessive about birds. Someone who's not been trained, they're not going to recognize bird sounds or bird colors or bird activity. But somebody who's trained their mind or a musician who's really trained their mind they can pick up all kinds of things. And so as a Buddhist, as somebody following or studying these teachings and training the mind, we become very clear, very fluent in noticing the minutiae of experience. But that's not where we stop, just being having refined attention. That's just a start. And it's really a beautiful start because we start feeling more intimate. Everything feels more alive, like just being with another human being or seeing a stoplight. Boy, that's red, right? Because 
we normally don't notice the red. Immediately the idea, that's a stoplight, that concept is there. And so the mind is only noticing stoplight, the concept, not the redness of seeing. So life just feels more enlivened when we're mindful. But eventually we go beyond the specific characteristics of every experience that's being known, and we start noticing the what are called in the Dharma, the teachings, the universal characteristics, that things are changing. And because things are always in motion as a natural process, they're not satisfying. A mental experience isn't actually dependable, doesn't lead to satisfaction, nor does a physical experience, a sight or sound, a touch. In fact, we can notice that nothing whatsoever is ultimately very satisfying. And I can prove it to you. We've had a lot of experiences in our lives. Anybody fully been sated, satisfied by your experience so you don't need anything anymore, ever? No. So we, But it isn't because we haven't had a lot of satisfactory experiences. It's that experience doesn't satisfy. How many good night's sleeps have we had? How many nice meals? How many nice interactions? But we're not satisfied because experience changes. It's a flow. It doesn't satisfy. And it's impersonal. It comes and goes. The flow of thought, the flow of touch, the flow of sound and sight. That movement is what we call conditional. It comes and goes according to causes and conditions. And those, the complexity of causes and conditions is unfathomable. I mean, sometimes we kind of get a sense of how come something has shown up in our experience, but it's always complex, the flow of what's happening. Right? So I'm not saying that it's definitely lawful, it's not random, but it's complex. And that complexity isn't personal. Even my own thoughts, they arise lawfully, conditionally. I sometimes get a sense of why this thought, why this emotional reaction is happening. But it's not really me making it happen. It's happening because of the enormity of how this mind was conditioned by culture, by genetics, by the different conditioning forces and the particular dance of what's showing up in the moment and triggering and modifying. and So the Buddhist teaching is basically to prong. Develop the kind of sensitivity, the continuity of mindful awareness that will allow the mind, the heart, to go from being lost in thought to being more and more intimate with the specific characteristics, the specific qualities of what's happening in the moment. So we get really fluent of noticing the different qualities of mind, wholesome and unwholesome, not judging it, and getting really intimate with the physical experience of seeing and hearing and tasting and smelling, touching. So we learn to sort of be in the enormity of stuff, being known. And it's, it's actually not so easy to be sensitive. 
The cool thing is, the only way to learn how to be sensitive is to deepen wisdom. And so as we practice being okay with what we're sensitive to, then the awareness just shifts deeper and we begin to notice not so much that the stoplight is red or this is a thought that I'd call judging or that this emotion I call love or hate, but that everything is coming and going. That one thing, it's always onward leading. It's always like one emotion followed by another emotion, one sight followed by another sight, one sound by another sound. Things are changing. So it's not like we could do that right now, right? We could notice that whether I like what Mark is saying or don't like it or understand it or don't understand it, couldn't we just notice the ongoingness of it? It's like more, you know, and then you, whatever reaction you're having, that's also a flow, like a river. And that, that the heart is never completely satisfied. We can't feed on experience. We can't really get what we think we want. We want solid ground, but we never get it. Because the way we're existing here is a restless realm because we're expecting to get solid ground in something that can't provide it. And the more we hang out, we see that it's impersonal. Now we're gonna we're gonna open to what we call these three universal characteristics in different ways. Some people are gonna notice the more impersonal nature. Their mind is just will be attuned or interested in that. Others more of the impersonal nature others more the unsatisfactory nature. So the Buddha would consider these three different gateways to insight. But remember, it's simply cultivating mindful awareness, sensitivity, so that we can see the underlying nature the way it is. And what is the way that it is? So one of these three gateways, it's changing, it's unsatisfactory, unreliable, it's impersonal. It's nature, not self. And so you could say, instead of keep calmly noticing change, we could say keep calmly noticing this isn't satisfactory. Even when it's really good for you in your life. It's so astounding. I mean, I consider myself pretty privileged in so many different kinds of ways. And I really, it's really striking me more and more how having a nice home or having, you know, good friends. As nice as it is, it doesn't mean it isn't nice, but it isn't that there isn't satisfaction there. It doesn't really take away that existential uneasiness. Oh, that's interesting. The ego, in a sense, never gets what it wants. See, generally that... The worldly life is thinking that if only I give the ego what it wants, then I'll be happy. The spiritual life is really defined by becoming suspicious whether, one, the ego can ever be given what it wants or even knows what it wants, and then deeper spiritual practices, is there even an ego that needs to be given something, right? Like, do I really even know what's going on here? enough to presume that there's a somebody who needs something in order to feel safe. So then that's where the 
awareness shifts into a deeper place where we're not making any presumptions. We're just being awake to the way it is. There's the body-mind, the activity of the body, the activity of the mind, but no no pre-sort of assumptions about what this is, including that there's a suffering being who needs something in order to be free. Even there's a suffering being who needs to practice, who needs to wake up and have insight in order to be free. We don't need any presumption or any fixed view whatsoever. We just need to keep calmly noticing the way it actually is. So we're quite literally letting reality transform the understanding. There's only one thing that needs to be transformed, wrong understanding, an understanding that is arising out of our cultural conditioning as opposed to understanding that's arising out of being intimate with the way it is. So let me just read one more thing before opening it up for discussion. This is from uh, a person that I've been, I've really enjoyed reading this article. It was written in 2014. Her name is uh, Eva Salidas, I believe it's pronounced. And she and her partner were somehow employed um, documenting whale activity in the northwest of the United States. And then they'd often, when they wanted a break from being out in the boat, observing the whale migrations, they would go to shore and they would often walk up these streams and, you know, kind of wilderness areas that empty into the ocean. And um, so she's talking about the, some of you know how the salmon runs, they go up, and it's at the end of the life cycle of salmon. And it's really, I've seen this up in Alaska when I was there, well, way back in the 80s. But the salmon, they kind of, in their dying, they're not really feeding once they leave the ocean and they swim up these streams. And the idea, I mean, what's genetically programmed is get back to where you were born and you lay your seeds or fertilize the seeds if you're a male salmon, and then you die. But in that process of not eating and swimming upstream, so to set in motion the next generation, they become transformed. They begin to look really primitive. I mean, the whole structure seems to change. It's really frightening in a way. But here's her description of this. The stench of a salmon stream in September is a cloying muck of rot, waste, ammonia. Rocks are smeared with bear, black bear shit, white gall shit. This is in-your-face Death, death, without palliation or mercy or intervention. At the same time, it is enlivening, feeding energy to gulls, bears, river otters, eagles, and the invisible decomposers who break the carcasses down to just bones and scales, which winter then erases. In spring, I kneel and drink from the same streams clear cold water or plunge my head into it. 
It is snowmelt and rain filtered through alpine tundra. Avalanche shoot, musk, muskeg, fen, and bog. It is wa- water newly born, fresh, alive, oxygenated, rushing over clean stones, numbing my skin. And the reason this is such a powerful article is because she's just writing about how these walks and seeing this is really helping her, her cancers come back. And as it turns out, you know, she dies not too long after this from her um, metastasized breast cancer. It's just another passage. She's talking about just some of the treatments and the, the sterility of the you know, Western medical system. And she says, ultimately what I faced those hospital nights, what I face every day is death impending the other side, the passing over into the big unknown, what writer Harold Brodke called his wild darkness, what poet Christian Wyman called the, his bright abyss. Death may be the wildest thing of all, the least tame or known phenomenon our consciousness has to reckon with. I don't understand how to meet it, not yet, maybe never. Perhaps, I tell myself, though we deny and abhor the battle death and battle death in our society, though we hide it away, it is something so natural, so innate, that when the time comes, our bodies, our whole selves, know exactly how it's done. All I know right now is that something has stepped toward me, some invincible, I'm sorry, some invisible presence in the woods, one I've always sensed and feared and backed away from, called out to an attentive voice, hello, trying to scare it off, but which I now must approach. I stumble toward it in dusky conifer light, my own predatory, furred, toothed, clawed angel. And so these you know, these realities of birth, with birth comes death, right? I mean, it's not just a metaphor, it's a reality. With gain, there's loss. With praise, there's blame. With fame, there's disrepute, there's pain and pleasure. The Buddha calls these the worldly winds or the vicissitudes. Really nice to be here tonight, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.